0: You are listening to On the Path with Dr. Charlie Kyle, Zach Rudis, John Grusowskis, episode four.
1: His he was practicing sororal polygyny in an African tradition. His wife and Sally Hemmings were sisters. Don't know who that is. Sally Hemmings' wife
2: and Sally Hemmings were sisters?
1: Yeah. They had the same father.
2: Whoa, I did not know that. Who's
1: Sally Hemmings? Sally Hemings was his second wife and her children are the ones who traveled with him to France when he was ambassador. His son by Sally Hemings became a famous French chef. A daughter, Harriet, uh, just disappeared because she passed for white. It's an interesting story and I think people have been bad-rapping Tom Jefferson in a way that I don't think they're taking the context into account. They're not looking at where things were in the 1770s, 80s, 90s, 1800s. And I think Jefferson was both very, very smart, very creative, and dedicated to freedom, justice, equality, all those things that he wrote about. It's just that uh, conditions and institutions and history and a whole bunch of, Abstract forces had combined to make him look like a
0: total hypocrite. Charlie and Zach, do you think you, if you were alive in the 1700s, do you think you would have owned slaves? I don't think so, no.
2: I'd like to think I wouldn't.
1: we <laughs> we both rather not imagine that. But, but we may, we
2: might have been brainwashed to
0: thinking it's normal.
2: Yeah, thinking as normal or believing in that type of superiority.
1: But see, racial superiority and all that stuff really developed in the 19th century. It's hard to put your head into the 18th century, 17th century, any of those earlier centuries, pre-American Revolution, pre-French Revolution. There's a whole different mindset that I struggle to, you know, even approximate. I, I find it easier to identify with people back in ancient Greece, five centuries B.C. I don't find a problem with that because I spent a couple of years with the Tiv and understand the Orba worldview, and they're very similar kinds of options for peoples back in uh, 500 B.C. But sev- 17th, 18th, those those 19th century, early 19th century. I have trouble with because I can't imagine a world uh, without electricity and without, um, you know, fast communications and all the things that we have now really shape our thinking in a completely different way from pre-media, pre-electricity. Big help with that is Marshall McLuhan, who understood the Gutenberg world better than I do.
2: By Gutenberg, you mean the period between the invention of the printing press and uh, the right. light
1: Yeah, exactly. The Gutenberg Galaxy, McLuhan's big book, was basically describing the world after the printing press where books became ever more available to people and that that book literacy was the dominant communication channel for a few centuries before radio, TV mass media
2: Well I might just to because my role here is obviously just to play devil's advocate with you Charlie Sure
1: <laughs>
2: is um how is it that Thomas Jefferson could effectively write his own bible erasing what he considered to be sort of the the magical mumbo jumbo that the that the bible was infused with yet he couldn't Get beyond ridding himself of involvement in slavery,
1: hm if, if I had an answer to that question, I'd give it to you quick. It seems just to me that uh, jefferson and and Washington and all those Virginian founding fathers were living with something like the white man's version of w. e. B. Du Bois's double consciousness you're conscious or triple consciousness, you're conscious of yourself as part of society, and then you're conscious of yourself as wanting to live out a set of ideals that you're constantly trying to develop. And there's such a gap between the two that it's like code switching. You have to kind of turn off one switch and turn on another. And I think the good Jefferson, the Jefferson that gave us the language of the Declaration of Independence and a good chunk of the Constitution, was um, just a brilliant and passionately um, revolutionary guy, and the American Revolution was the one that has lasted the longest because those guys um, gave it deep and serious thought and didn't allow any kind of loose lingo to... um, deter them from trying to define the right values. So there's nothing wrong with the values in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution except for the obvious one that they hadn't figured out, that we were all created truly equal. But they they use that language. All men are created equal. And then institutional factors put some people in slavery and leave others uh, free to act and... Non-slave waves, or to step outside the slave master relationship. But very few people did that. I mean, there were a lot of people in New England and all over America in the 1600s and 1700s who owned slaves because uh, if you could do it, you would, might do it to have you know servant power. Remember, there's no other power. There's not somebody to do the vacuum cleaning with a vacuum cleaner. Somebody's got to push that broom. Somebody's got to do everything that needs doing. And now we have uh, machinery that can do a lot of that. So that's a, you know, slaves were a, how can I, boy, this is a big topic. (laughs) I didn't come ready to talk about it, but I, I can't really answer your question, Zach, about context and... To explain I can't explain Jefferson.
2: It's it's wildly complicated. I was I was um I deep I did like a, a shallow dive into uh, Mauritania a few years back. Mm-hmm. And Maurita- the country of Mauritania has enshrined like culturally enshrined slavery that continues to this day, where Arab descendants keep uh Sub-Saharan slaves, right? And odds are you you know you inherit the the children of your father's slave, for example. Yep. And even with even with modern information, there's um, they're having a lot of difficulty shaking this practice.
1: And, and here, the world has moved past that by a century or so and yep. and they're still mired in it. And I think that consciousness in the Arabic world is highly variable, where you have some countries that practice brotherhood irrespective of phenotypes and appearances and so on and so forth, and a lot of Sufi Muslims and different branches of Islam are radically egalitarian. We're all the children of Allah. In other places, it's a feudal, hierarchical, are aristocracies and all kinds of gradations in between, and somehow that is all possible within the Islamic world. Malcolm X was just beginning to get his head around some of that when he was assassinated. But he's he's a key character I think about all the time in terms of um, what would he have thought about Jefferson or about uh, Sally Hemings and what is it four children that he had with Sally Hemings and effectively she was his wife his white wife her stepsister Sally Hemings stepsister um died young and so he was if, if, in effect married in his mind I think to Sally Hemings for most of his um, most of his life did she survive him I wonder. I don't
2: know. we gotta get, we got to get our Wikipedia guy on the case. I don't know. Yeah.
1: I'll, now that I know this is going to be a theme, I'll, I'll go do some work on it. I always check in once in a while to see what's the latest on the, the Jefferson story because he certainly is in disrepute these days, and he never was in my childhood. You know, when I was going through high school and college and so on, Jefferson was a big hero in an unquestioned way, or at least I didn't hear any any big challenges to his um, position as the founding uh, found key founding father. But then this whole founding father notion is is super patriarchal, right? We have to get around the um, the total patriarchy of that time.
0: Forty five just... presidents and not a single woman. Right. Yep. It seems I
2: crazy. I can't get over the uh I can't I, I really just can't get over the the religious uh nature of how we regard our foundational documents and the founding fathers. Like we really often view founding fathers in the same light as we might view saints. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way people venerate the Constitution, which which is a which is an amazing document, but I think many people venerate the Constitution uh, with an uncritical eye mm-hmm. uh, as something of a holy text, without really considering the the contents, perhaps.
1: Well, maybe I'm I'm a I'm a Constitution venerator, and I try to live my life in terms of the Ninth Amendment in particular. But almost everybody, I, ta- I just talked with my oldest friend. We were in kindergarten together, <laughs> you know, many years ago. And he we were pals in high school, and um, he went off to Harvard. I went to Yale. He became a neuroscience and neurology guy and on the Harvard Medical School faculty and so on. And um, he hadn't really heard about the Ninth Amendment or thought about it, couldn't Can you actually,
2: for for us Philistines out here, can you uh, give us a quick rundown on the Ninth?
1: Sure. The enumeration, this is what it says in 21 words. This is maybe missing a word or, you know, it's not perfect. The enumeration of certain rights in the Constitution shall not be construed to deny or disparage Others retained by the people. In other words, every right, fundamental, natural, inalienable, basic human right, is ours as citizens of this country. We are sovereign when it comes to the right to water, the right to air, the right to breathe, the right to vote, the right to organize uh, a union. None of this is in the Constitution. You hereby have a right to clean air. No, it was just assumed that everybody knew that you needed air to breathe, and water to drink, potable water. I think that's about as basic a human right as there is: right to water, right to air, right to s- soil that's not polluted. And Can all you of these think things.
2: Of any, sorry, sorry, sorry. Just, little... just
1: just to be nail down what that Ninth Amendment means. It means all the rights that were not specified in the Bill of Rights. And about 40 rights, give or take five or six, are specified in those 10 amendments to the Constitution. And the 9th and 10th are sort of about everything that's not in the Constitution or not given to the states belongs to the people. And that's the fundamental, inalienable, natural, there before the Magna Carta, rights. Right, these are the ones we were born with, or the head we had fifty thousand years ago, Cro-Magnon rights, <laughs> maybe Neanderthal rights. Do you see what i k- the kind of rights I'm talking about? Right to life, right to um, freedom of movement. You know, you shall not be manacled. They didn't put all that into the Constitution because it was just it would make a, a many many pages long book to list all the rights that humans being have of humans. And we're not aware of these, the most fundamental ones, until they're being taken away. It's not till the air gets polluted or the oceans get polluted or the waters, the rivers and lakes and streams get polluted Mm -hmm. with chemicals that nobody ever heard of before, thousands of them on the loose and combining in new ways all the time. We've unleashed onto the world a whole bunch of things that we have no knowledge of what they're going to do or how they're going to recombine. And to me, this is the um, the big warning signal. What this election is about, what any any given podcast must be about, is who are we, why are we here, and can we possibly sustain this experiment in consciousness for another few thousands of years a few hundred thousand years don't we want a long term future that the the whole question in my mind every morning when i wake up worrying is are we going to have a long term future that's the greta the greta question are you guys taking away my future from me and you think you can get away with that well we're getting away with it right up till today and nobody's jumped up and said we've got to go with greta Make sure future generations get the, um, the okay sign from us. We're going to do everything humanly possible to make sure that there are future generations beyond seven. Seven generations was the Native American maxim. Now it's got to be 70 or 700. We have to be thinking 700 generations out. Can we still have human consciousness if we do what we're doing today? Nope. Better get peace in a hurry. Better get echo equilibrio, to be a one-letter word.
2: As a uh, as a Ninth Amendment uh, advocate, do you can you think of any examples where the Ninth Amendment has been used to uphold a major ruling? Yep. Or is it generally considered to be almost too elastic?
1: It was ignored, or to, to, it was ignored for a better part of a century. They thought about it back in the early days, and they've been thinking about it a lot more in the last ten years. But it's still mar- very marginal. Just a few books about the Ninth Amendment, but Bennett Patterson's "The Forgotten Ninth Amendment," published in 1955, is, I think, one of the great books. It's just 90 pages of his writing, and then. This whole other part of the book is the annals of Congress, what people were conversing with A- Madison about. Um, I can talk about that some more if you want to. But this, this notion... Say it again, Zach, because I'm about to, about to lose the thrust of your question. Uh, I
2: oh, think what I was uh, asking where has it
1: been relevant? Where has it been tested? And the first place I think of is Griswold versus Connecticut which was the famous Supreme Court decision <clears throat> that people in Connecticut should have the right to uh, prophylactics, to um, birth control pills eventually out of that, but basically to be able to go to the drugstore and be able to uh, take that home. And... I've heard
2: of Griswold versus Connecticut. Uh, actually, I, I read about it this past week because this is a major concern with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, right, there's been some analysis that suggests that that
1: that's an example of a ruling that could be in danger. Yes, and and the Ninth Amendment may come up for profound discussion. Should we should we devote this um, this podcast to this uh, Ninth Amendment natural rights thing? Because I think it's it's certainly current. And I think it's going to be continuing over the next century or so to continue to keep... If the, if the Constitution is going to be saved and not completely scrapped and rewritten, that Ninth Amendment is the pathway for discovering rights, inventing rights, which is what has always happened. Human rights were never a topic until we began losing them. And the, the book there is Lynn Hunt... Uh, a woman professor out at UCLA who wrote Inventing Human Rights and describes how Voltaire w- grew up in a culture in France where two kinds of torture were routine, approved by the state, and approved by the church. You torture a criminal once to get a confession, and after you've got the confession, no matter how bloody the torture would be to get that confession, Then you torture him a second time to make sure you've got all the accomplices, that he's ratted out everybody who helped him commit this crime. And Voltaire accepted that as normal. Yeah, you have to torture twice, once for the confession and once for the accomplices. And then the case came up about a father who was protecting the reputation of his son who had committed suicide. He said, no, he didn't commit suicide. I killed him. And confessed and then they said, did you have any accomplices? And they tortured him. Or And Voltaire, when that finally came out that what this father had done was try to save the honor or reputation of his son, he said, what kind of a society are we living in where we torture people to make confessions if they want to live, if they want to survive? He said, this is not good. <laughs> and he began to think through, you can't really torture anyone for any reason if you're going to be a decent human being. This is very unchristian. We're not turning the other cheek, are we? We're not trying to empathize with the person who's been accused. He's not not. innocent until proven guilty, blah, 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 etc., etc.
0: We're not doing unto others. Right. So the relationship
1: between religion and the state and the whole concept of human rights has been invented all the way through from Hammurabi Code or whatever the first legislation or first uh, proclamation of human rights or who who gets to um, do what, that that whole stream of consciousness emerged with civilization, history, literacy, um, the word written down, taking on, as you put it, a certain sacredness when it's about the rule of law, um, that's that's been a recent development in human consciousness. Just over the last few thousand years, before that, it was egalitarian, and you do what you want to, and people were always functioning in small groups, never in cities, never in uh, you know big aggregates of human beings. We're not we're not known until five six thousand years ago, and then only in a few rare places where. You had a very fertile river valley or where domestication of plants could take place. And so that, um, that emergence is, um, you know, probably a 10,000-year story. And it culminates in cities and fortresses and walls and castes and class and slavery. And all the, all the things that we're really troubled about today uh, weren't there six 7,000 years ago. I keep that in mind constantly. As a good anarchist, I want to know that we were anarchists or anarchs without fixed leadership for all of human evolution up until four, five, six millennia ago. There's all these religious, political, and musicing questions. Who gets to make the music? Who listens? Who plays? All those didn't become questions. Everybody made music. Uh, as they needed to up until a few thousand years ago. I've pleaded with students now for, I don't know how long, 50 years to take that in. Just take it in. We had equality. We had um, no need for a concept of justice because everybody was keeping an eye on everybody else. And if anybody did something wrong, they were sure to hear about it and sure to have a big family discussion about it. And there was no law. You don't need law when you've got social cohesion and constant gossip, et cetera.
2: So can can technology save us from technology? Can codification of ideas save us from our original sin of, of codification and, <laughs> and division and hierarchy?
1: Right. Can the problem save you from the problem is what the nasty way to put that can technology save you from technology from codification protect you from the wrong kind of codification it's a it's a puzzle
2: and is there another is there another hope anyway?
1: i mean can can
2: can well, we go back to to uh anarcho-primitivism
1: say that again Anarcho- said, can,
2: can we go back to an, an anarcho-primitivists? I, I, I can't imagine that. I don't see that.
1: I can I, imagine can. it every day, and I do, and I try to play my horn that way, and I try to teach. I, I, I try to I teach really drumming into, uh, to to make it as primitive as possible.
2: I got but, really into John Zerzan for a while, but I couldn't. I had to turn. I had to turn turn my back to it. Why? Why,
1: why give up on John Zerzon? He's one of my heroes.
2: I mean, I love, I, I, love, I love the idea, but I think that ultimately I get, I get to a point with uh, ideology like anarcho-primitivism. Uh, it's, it's kind of the same place I get to with uh, libertarianism. Yep. Is, oh, I, I, there's something about it that I fundamentally dig. There's something about it that appeals to me, but when I really try to lay it bare... I see that we live in a world where, wait a minute, is individual property law gonna really protect water? Is individual property law really gonna keep the air cre- air clean or the nuclear the nuclear power station from melting down and spewing out radiation for fifty thousand years? I don't think so.
1: I don't think so either. The 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 search—the way Stanley Diamond put it in his title of his book was "In Search of the Primitive." We are looking. Making my
2: my reading list way too long here, Charlie. This is out of control.
1: We got a lot of time. You got a whole—you got a whole sixty years to, to get a hold of Stanley Diamond's "In Search of the Primitive." The first sentence in the first chapter is: "Civilization begins with aggression abroad and repression at home." in other words you don't go into iraq or into afghanistan or the belgians into the what became the belgian congo you don't you don't make a move on another society without introducing without having to do aggression you got to persuade a bunch of people who are egalitarian and classless hey we really got a nice hierarchy here for you and you're at the bottom of it oh you don't like it but roll up the gatling gun it's by force and only by force that class society spreads itself. And by withdrawing the forces, the minute we give up militarism, it's going to be a, a nice free-for-all, I hope, of people deciding on what basis they want to be together and how big a group do we want to be with our language or, wow, are we too big? We, maybe we better split up. The The splitting tendency, which is, must have been huge throughout history, because when you go to a place like the Joss Plateau in Africa, and you realize that 50 languages, separate languages, as different from each other as French from German, are on that Joss Plateau and have been there for a long time. People naturally want their own language. They will naturally want their own little bit of turf where they can subsist upon, and they're pretty happy with very minimal food requirements and so on and so forth. we manufactured a lot of wants Uh, that we don't need. You know, needs, wants, I I get confused whenever I think about what the difference might be. But we've generated excess desire, to put it in the anarchist desire term. We've got excess desire, too much, we want too much, I want, I want, I want. And um, people can live with very, very basic minimal needs met and be living in their imaginations, creating poetry, creating all the music they want to make, every kid a poet and a drummer and a singer and a dancer, it's, it's all within pleasurable reach because, and we've, because we've done it before. I mean, to me, that's the single biggest thing to say for John Zerzan or Stanley Diamond or anybody who theorizes the primitive as better than the civilized, is we've been there for thousands of years. We're just reclaiming our, I would argue, our original human nature. Humo ludens collaborans, Humorous, playful, and collaborative. That's who we are. I believe that 100%. And we ain't homo sap sap, who is all the same and thinks that they know it all. You know, you heard that word smugnorance? No. Recently coined by um, that comedian with a panel there. Oh, I can't remember his name. He... um, one of the guys on the panel said, could she be smugnerant? Is that what's her problem? Or is there a word smugnerance? And I think there's not only a word, there's a concept. There's a pervasive... The part of the big fog is to per- persuade yourself that you know quite a bit and you know enough to do this, 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 and this. And that that smugnerance or... Um, confidence misplaced confidence is hubris is pride going before a fall is we got to go to the next frontier no we don't we can sit back and just take it back to 1840 and if we the sooner we get aware of what what we're doing wrong and turn around to go back to a basic imbalance, a basic balance with nature as soon as we take that turn it's going to get easier and easier to do that while we go the other direction, seems like it's impossible to correct all the technology that we already have that is spinning off more technologies as we speak. Right, The minute this gadget gets out of date, there's going to be a better microphone. The minute the zooming
0: collapses for whatever reason, there'll be hyper-zoom. Isn't that interesting? It's like technology keeps getting more and more advanced, but like, for instance, Apple... They're never going to be like, okay, these laptops are all set. These are good. We Let's stop right here. Yeah, It's like, no, they're constantly advancing. Yeah. It's, there's never going to be a moment where they're like, these are fast enough. These are good enough. We're, we're good. These do everything we need. <laughs> it's just going to keep increasing, correct? Well, okay. Here's the Concorde. Seen a new Concorde lately? No, they discontinued it, right? Yeah. What
1: about the Titanic? Did they ever try that ship again? You know, you know what I mean. I mean, I, big, how big can a plane be? Uh, what's his name? Harold, who Hugh, Howard Hughes created the Spruce Goose out of spruce things with eight engines. The thing could never take off, I don't think. Mm. You know, we've gone to the guy gigantic, taken a look at it, and said this is absurd, and turned back. And that's been happening more and more recently. We come to another frontier where we don't need to go. We just don't need to go there. How fast do you want to get across the Atlantic? Eight hours is is not quick enough. You got to be there four hours.
2: Why? I want to get across the Atlantic in like two, Charlie, so I can so I can just like pop home and do the podcast in person. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's true. Travel quicker. Travel would be cool, but how fast does our data transfer need to be? How fa- how many videos do we need to be able to? watch in a row, when is it enough? When are our devices sufficient to give us the information we need and when are we overdoing it and gluttonizing information?
2: When you no longer have to exist in the physical world.
0: <laughs> is that where we're headed? Where we're we're gonna be circuitry and our consciousness <laughs> is going to be uploaded? I hope not. <laughs>
1: Not too, but but you could see, you know, you see it in Star Trek. What was that? That was that moment when um, the guy had the gear. You know, he was turning into Data. Picard
0: had been Oh, out. he was turning into a Borg. Yes, he had yes. been Borgified. And then there was that, luscious, that luscious
1: creature there who was, who was part Borg. Uh, that's when I tuned out. That's about when we got rid of the television. I said, this is getting too crazy, and I don't need it so the the ability to turn off a technology or to just turn your back on it i think it's occurring to more and more people uh my good friend steve feld my big buddy in ethnomusicology he uh he he can't stand facebook or the idea of facebook or that one guy zuckerberg can control these billions of dollars by just opening a channel and not bothering to monitor it or Figure out what it's doing to society. He's he's really, and he's he's a pro technology guy. We've had our arguments in print over technology over the years, and uh, I think he's coming around to um, seeing some technologies as just don't don't go there. Do not put this into play because we're not ready for that, or we're, will we ever be ready for that kind of? information processing or whatever. So people are coming up against screens, up against fake news of, um, of all kinds, disinformation, um, new concepts for kinds of disinformation. All The vocabulary is is growing for how to talk about all this. And I'm hoping that we'll start acting on that. That's what Greta asks us to do, is to not just know better, but to act better and start acting in terms of our own survival. And that means poking people who are in denial, in the gentlest, most humorous, um, you know, no sharp elbows, just try to persuade people that there's a wonderful way to be on the planet that doesn't destroy the future.
0: I've heard that. Also, oh, no, go ahead, yeah, Zach. Sorry,
2: John. No, no, John, take it.
0: Zach is coming alive to us from Spain, so there's a slight delay. Um, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about uh, ayahuasca, um, which, of course, for those of you who don't know, is a, brew, a hallucinogenic brew used in the Amazon um, on vision quests and psychedelic experiences. And one of the common overarching themes that people encounter is they tend to feel as if they are coming in contact with the natural world, like a, an entity or a intelligence that is warning them, listen, we need to return to our intertwining with nature and we need to change our ways now because this is a, a wake up call, a warning call that the way we're doing things is not good for the planet. And we are killing our oceans. We're killing our air. Um, so I've heard that that's a common theme when taking that, um, that drug, which of course is made out of two plants found in the Amazon, um, that it literally speaks to you and, and and it's almost like nature is begging us to change our ways. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Ever-
2: people often speak of, uh, of plant intelligence uh, when they're in that sort of shamanic, uh, Amazonian shamanic paradigm.
0: Yeah, uh, Dennis McKenna says that plants are absolutely have an intelligence um, that might not be so readily apparent to us. uh, But sometimes when you ingest them, Mm -hmm. it can be a way of communing with it.
1: You can't, if you're listening, you know, um, to the odd hours out to the radio, that's the only medium that we use to get our daily news, really. Uh, You get in a program once in a while, I just heard a guy sharing about his many deep dives to communicate with an octopus, a particular octopus. Hmm.
2: Who... I, I saw I saw this documentary, uh, My Octopus Teacher. It was incredible.
1: Yeah. Incredible. That, that kind of a documentary was in theory, because he's diving without any equipment, no tech, or maybe he's got goggles or something, but he's communicating with this octopus on a daily basis for some years. Free diving, no oxygen. Right.
2: Free diving in cold water off the coast of South Africa, and he actually uh, he went every day for about a year, and that's that's roughly what an octopus's life cycle is. So he essentially was there for the octopus's entire life, almost.
0: Wait, really? Octopus only live for a year? No, no. Yeah. Well, this this one maybe, but some of them particular
2: species at least. Yeah. Oh wow, that's
1: fast. Well, the. The more you learn about octopi, the more you're uh, going to join up with Jaron Lanier and say, I can't eat that critter. Mm. It's it's almost as smart as we are.
0: they're incredibly intelligent. They can figure out mazes, and they can fit themselves through very small (coughs) holes. They can change their body uh, texture and color, which was first thought to be communication, but has also been discovered to be communication. Sorry, did I say communication? it was first thought to be camouflage, but they've realized they're actually communicating visually. Right.
1: No, there's all when kinds When they find
2: of... the octopus, when he finds it, he's, he actually sees a strange ball on the ocean floor, and it looks like this weird ball of shells and rocks and strange objects. And as he gets closer, this ball just throws off all of the, like, a 100 different small objects... And it turned out that the octopus had actually collected about, I don't know, maybe a hundred different objects and made itself into what would just appear to be some kind of weird rock coral thing as a means of protection. Right.
1: Self-armoring. Radical. Some concept like that. Wow. But but that's one species and there are many species of octopus and there are 90,000 ways to be a spider estimated. And 98% Ninety-eight percent of those spiders have sensors in their legs, eyes in their legs. They, they do the equivalent work of eyes, and so they have kind of brains in each one of those eight legs. Uh, spiders and octopuses, and the things that spiders do with, you know, with a, a head the size of a pin. They are able to mend mm. webs, create webs, mend webs. Know when something too big for the web is in there, and try to cut it loose. That's intelligence, you know, without a doubt. I mean, yeah, uh, it's architecture. And we, as people who in the West, we're big on architecture. Look what those spiders yeah. are doing! It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and if you H- give them LSD, they'll
2: they'll weave they'll weave, like totally out there wacky webs. Let's
1: let's go back to to the. Uh, to the Amazon, no, to the Amazonian, to the LSD, to the mushrooms, to the latest um, combination from the Amazon. All of those things are telling us by way of clearing the networks, you know, clearing out uh, or making, f- making it possible to think, feel, grasp a larger awareness that all the things that we know, Homo sap sap... Has, has not cognitively clogged up the cortex with all kinds of ideologies and rules and thing and mm. that stuff gets peeled away you get to th- say ooh, we are sensate warm curious human beings collaborative collaborative humorous playful we play all the time couldn't we yeah we could if we, we didn't have this you know burden of occupation and follow your calling and be all you can be. Well, maybe all those big core values of progress and civilization, that's where Jer- John Zerzion, I think, is devastating. He just, poof, pushes them away. Bob Black is another one. I just got his books. because Can got... you
2: spell that last name?
1: Bob Black.
2: Oh, Black. I thought you said Black. Okay.
1: B-L-A-C-K. And I talked to him once on the phone. he was very kind of antisocial or you know putting me off, and um hes lives, I think, just outside of Buffalo. And I was surprised because he's kind of a, a a well-known anarchist thinker, controversial in some ways, but very private person, I think, and he was the first to really take a good slug at work as some necessary Function, You know, the dignity of labor. Oh, nonsense. <laughs> We'd all much rather be playing. And I, he doesn't push play in the same way that Dave Graber has, but he does take apart work as a, as a... Mm. Labor, as a, a Dehumanizing duty. duty. Yeah, he's a... A pillar
2: he, of, found, of society.
1: So I, I went and got his... Summary of all of his anti-work little essays, and he also titled a book with my favorite uh, cynic philosopher Diogenes, um, defacing the currency. Is it defacing, refacing? Anyway, it's. A, I've got four copies of each of those, and I'll I'll bring copies here for you and John. We'll mail you a couple. Uh he Bob Black is very extremist in his. Generalizations. Sometimes he makes categorical statements that are not always true, but he's reasoning in a kind of public way with lots of footnotes about his anti-work and um, anti-state. You know, he, he's a classic anarchist uh, thinker, and always good to 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 have in mind for his critiques, and then what's he got, you know, your your question, how do we get there from here, or how do we reclaim this in a way that accommodates 8 billion people? That's the big question. Mm-hmm. How do we, um, can we get a greenhouse on every block? Can we get, you know, can we arrange our technology in such a way that we can keep 8 billion people fed, satisfied, secure, and confident enough to think clearly, and not be afraid, afraid, afraid. <gasps> we gotta have more war material. We gotta have mm. better security, better security, better security. All these these false things, you know. Nuclear weapons do not make you more secure; Mm-mm. they make you less secure. How every bomb built is a threat to your existence. Yep. How pe- white people can't get that through their heads, and they think they've got a chain of command. And that the little guy with the football that follows Trump around, that he's reliable, what if he monkeys with it before Trump even gets to push the button? We kind of hope he does. You know what I mean? These technologies are in the hands of, literally in the hands of people who are just doing what they're told and see it as their job. So job, work, duty, responsibility, all these things have to change radically, completely to closer to what with came before. And that's why I keep mm-hmm. saying Zerzan and Stanley Diamond and anybody who's thought about the primitive or been with primitive people and seen how they maintain their anarchy mm-hmm. and how they do no harm to their kids, yeah. you got to pay just pay attention and see how they do it. They're, they're doing it very humbly, very carefully, and very contentedly, and nobody ever left classless society voluntarily it works and it's worked for humans for tens of thousands of years so keeping that in mind we take as much technology as we can the speediest communications that we need how fast do we need to communicate you know jefferson did pretty well by sending letters back and forth Mm -hmm. across the atlantic by clipper ship or whatever intellects could could grasp key ideas from each other pre rapid communication, pre telegraph, pre phone, pre pre all the speed. The speed is is, is part of the problem.
2: Going
0: well, we're going too fast. Is
1: what
2: you're
0: saying. <laughs> we're hypocrites for podcasting apparently.
1: Yeah. Well
0: you gotta podcast a little bit. <laughs> so Terrence McKenna mentions the group mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and to me that plays into the homo ludens collaborans. Um, he mentions that, you know, eating psilocybin mushrooms can cause boundary dissolution where you no longer see a separation between you and your neighbor and you have this desire to collaborate and to work with them for the survival of your tribe. Yep. Does that make sense? Sure does. Um, I mean, he thinks that mushrooms literally were, the reason we display humanness. He thinks that apes began eating these and it led to laughter, self-awareness, creativity, art. He mm-hmm. thinks that psychedelic the psychedelic realm is literally was the springboard in our mental evolution to what we are now, which is this weird monkey who can look back at itself with the Hubble telescope and question its place in the universe. But he also mentions that collaboration and community that the group mind um, can incite.
1: Group mind is really good if the group is small. And that's why there's 50 50 different languages on the Joss Plateau. Another 40 languages on the Mambila Plateau. There are plateaus all over Africa that you guys probably haven't heard of. Mm. And on each one of those plateaus where where the weather was a little bit better and the malarial mosquito didn't get, you know what I mean? A few few breaks from nature and you have broad cultural diversity, very different traditions, different instruments, different... When I, when I think back to my two trips to Nigeria, one in 1960 and again in 65, 67, each time I came back with a sense of human possibility, there are 500, over 500 languages spoken in Nigeria. Five hundred different languages. And I kept meeting people on the riverside <laughs> who said, y- you think I'm a Tiv, don't you? And I said, yeah, aren't you a young Tiv fella? He said, no, I'm a Boan. And he gave me the name of some other people. I said, you count to 10 differently from t- from Dan- you know, mm-hmm. He had a language I'd never, I couldn't find it in the Murdoch's book of African peoples or whatever. He said, he said, we're pretty much going extinct as a group with a language. I just remember some lullabies that were sung to me in that language, and most of the time I speak Tiv or Hausa or English. And, you know, he explained where his group of, he figured this there were 800 to 1,000 people who were traditionally fisher people on these rivers. And he said, I think we're, you know, our time is up because we don't need that separateness anymore. We're getting smaller and the Tiv are getting bigger and they're enclaving us and will be speaking these other languages. So what did now. we
0: have before everything was codified into words and phonemes and language? What did humans do? They had a flow of language. They had flows of music,
1: dance, drumming, singing, fluting. You know, the instruments were there. The um, Those flows of energy as communication that had both meaning and feeling and that bind people together, we've had that for a long time. And we're going to continue to have that. And in my faith, the path, if you prefer, is that this path is all about face-to-face communication post-COVID and pre-COVID. We're going to be back face-to-face communication. That toddler jam that was going on here in this very room, a very, very precious thing, an s- extremely precious thing because it's asking each parent and child to participate and to pick up a skill and to have fun with it and to be together and we were it was going very slowly in my mind I know you know we'd wait for a couple of months for little so and so to pick up an instrument and then not put it right back down but actually <laughs> pluck it or, or do something with it but we were on the right track and it's it's really like so frustrating to me that COVID is putting us back in this, uh, mm. you know, masked and distanced
0: and... I hate the term socially distanced. Oh. I wish that it was physically distanced. Yeah. Because we need more than ever to be social, yeah. to interact. This
1: is very precious here, the three of us and Angie sitting here with a chuckle once in a while. <laughs> you know, it's like um, we get, <laughs> we can be a threesome or a foursome of variable communication and, and co-evolve a little bit of culture. Every time we get together, I, in my mind, think we're reclaiming primitive, face-to-face, sociability, bit by bit, word by word, and putting words together, hyphenating them, and pushing them together as the computers are pushing us to make Born to Groove one word. You know what I mean? With the, 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 the systems that we have will give us clues as to what we need to do to simplify, slow up. It's not just slow food. It's slower knowledge acquisition. Let's be sure of our facts. Let's not take the latest conspiracy theory and just run with it. Mm -hmm. Why not just pitch it if it looks like it's heading in the wrong direction? I'm amazed that the, um, the conspiracy theory people there with the Q thatish or whatever. you know I just heard about that again this morning that now politicians in Georgia are dividing you know into different kinds of white supremacists, but it's, it's all about thinking um, th- unthinkable thoughts and accepting them in combinations that keep white people in charge. somehow. It is pretty strange.
2: It's infecting Europe now, too. Yeah. There's a lot of... There's been some popular movements, such as the uh, the popular movement in France in the last couple of years. They were called the, the Gilets Jaunes, which they, in English, were calling them the, uh, the yellow vests. Right. And uh, they took to the streets, you know, every Saturday for I don't know how many consecutive weeks. And uh, the types of videos that maybe they were seeking out on YouTube... Well, YouTube was putting the the algorithm was putting two and two together and directing them towards QAnon type material. Mm -hmm. And so now this, what was a, what we could consider to be a fairly apolitical, fairly benevolent pro citizen movement has become infected with white supremacist ideas, um, all sorts of really hardcore anti-Muslim sentiment, anti-immigrant sentiment. Right. Uh, It's a global issue.
1: And all these things always wind up anti-Semitic. You know, it's like picking on the Jews is the default position after you've picked on the Catholics and the blacks or after you've picked on, you know, after you've, Sorted out your scapegoats as to who's plausibly accountable for this awful thing or that. But when you found your pedophiles in one group after another, you know, pretty soon we'll be looking around for pedophile squirrels. Or, you know, who, who can we project our stuff onto? As if, you know, loving children it used to be we all loved our kids and there was no ambiguity about that. Now, oh, you love children, huh? Hmm. Pedophilia. It, it's it's. Um, if you look at the Greek roots, pedophilia is just loving children. Oh oh, I see they're not loving them in the right way, and we're projecting that onto. I as I heard it this morning, they were projecting it onto all the Democratic Party. No, both parties, Trump and Biden are both pedophiles, according to QAnon. And Giuliani, um, according
2: according <laughs> to QAnon, Trump is uh, Trump is fighting against like a, a liberal uh, Jewish adjacent elite that is running a global child sex trafficking ring, and that Trump is Trump is actually the real the real champion who's going to fight for these poor children. Uh, that's that's like the that's the bedrock
0: of you can't the make this shit up ideology. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear about Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, he got his daughter to interview Giuliani, did you hear about this?
2: Yes, I did.
0: Yeah, and apparently he caught Giuliani on camera basically flirting with his 16 year old daughter and touching his genitals and it's on camera, and it's about to come out on Sasha Baron Cohen's new show, uh, Borat. That
2: person, that person was not actually underage. The person who did that was actually something like 24 years old, but told Giuliani in the video that she was like 15 to get a little panic out of him.
0: Yikes.
1: Yeah. I don't know. If you follow into these... It, it it plays it just like any attention given to Trump favors Trump in some fundamental way, it gives him more energy. And it's all the same thing with, with all these QAnon things. They, they gain power when we discuss them, when we um, give them credit, any kind of credibility, yeah. ability to yeah.
0: influence people. We've just informed influenced. people on our podcast what QAnon is, and now they're going to go Google it and join up. Hopefully not. <laughs>
2: well, that's... That's uh that's actually fifty seven minutes, guys. So maybe we could just you know eliminate the QAnon talk and call yeah. the podcast. Sounds
1: yes. good. Sounds good to me. And I think we were really on a good, good theme. Excellent theme of uh, yeah. That was a, that
2: that was actually pr- pretty damn smooth, considering we're talking from three thousand miles away.
0: Right. And how does all this? He's in Spain. Yep. Yeah, how does all this uh, talk of the Ninth Amendment and Gosh, we are all over the place. How does it all, real quick, Chuck, if you could sum it, up, sum it up, how does it all relate to getting children grooving? Well, the society
1: that we're talking about pre-civilization is what we're going to have to have something very much like that post-civilization. And I'm thinking music is, is about as magical as we ever need to be the ability to make sounds on different instruments, use voice disguisers. You know, that a lot of the technology is serving, um, you know, conventional saxophone playing or conventional piano playing or whatever. All of a sudden, now we got different keyboards and the keyboard can do all the instruments and you can make a, a, a string bass sound like a saxophone. You know, all this metamorphosing and... Um, metaphoring, making bridges between different instruments and on and on and on. We can do anything we want to do musically and I don't think we need any more, you know, beyond sampling, what do we need to do? Beyond all these things that we can do, with? when you open up that lid on that, all those foot pedals or, you know, pedals that control sound in different ways and bend it and we can do anything we want to with sound let's do it and let's spend more time doing it and let's teach little kids how to do it with thumb pianos and primitive instruments and then oh you can add a little thing here and put in and and have five of you now you need another couple of people don't you to help that would be a group we call that a group <laughs> we call that synchrony so i think every exploration that we do of What's wrong with contemporary society? What we had five thousand years ago and what we could have in the future, ties ties it all together, you know, including the talk about Jefferson, who invented different technologies to get food up from the basement of you know, different pulleys and stuff like that. He was a very inventive guy. and his his prose, I think, far outweigh, the things that are held against him mm-hmm. but we gotta go reevaluate each other in this moment, which way are we going? And reevaluate Tom and reevaluate current leaders in terms of past leaders and who was trying to lead us in which direction for what reason. All those questions wide open and they constitute a kind of path, a path of of inquiry. What do we need John, to get out of here? I wanna I wanna
2: maybe take what your question Take what Charlie just said and, and wrap it up and synthesize it. Is maybe the Ninth Amendment gives us the right to groove? You know, yep. maybe that's maybe that's maybe that's how we got to read it.
0: Exactly. Maybe
2: we have a constitutional right to groove, Charlie. <laughs> I've
1: been I, I didn't write to Clinton or to um, I I started letters. You know, a letter to the president. When are we going to get a right to groove? Back in the twentieth century. I was thinking about the right to groove. Uh, And now, you know, it's going to keep coming up, and we're going to find a way to, um, as we're losing it, because we are losing it,
0: you know, a lot of And it has been outlawed in in history. Um, Slaves were forbidden from gathering with large metal objects, you know, their bells, because they could be weapons. They didn't like seeing these people getting together in circles and congregating and showing cohesion and confidence and power and groove, which is what rhythm does. It shows... Clapping
2: on the wrong beat.
0: Yeah, it shows connectedness. It shows a team. It's a signaler of of the the strength of your um, uh, coalition. Mm -hmm. So they don't like that. That's intimidating let's get start right there next time cool thanks everybody thanks for listening